up and welcome to the Temple of Blair, episode W. This is a conversation with Ed Von Ziel. Ed is the founder and owner of the Mascot Label Group, uh, featuring labels such as Mascot, Provo, Music Theories, Cool Green, The Funk Garage, home to some of your favourites such as Blackstone, Cherry, Black Label Society, uh, Volby, Black Country Communion, Joe Bonamassa, and many, many, many more. But Ed did start his career uh, adjacent to Roadrunner. He worked for uh, Bertus, who provided Roadrunner with their initial backroom functionality and admin before moving into Roadrunner in 1985. And he stayed there until 1992 before forming Mascot. Ed was incredibly helpful in this episode as he guided me through the world before the US office opened. Uh, Everything from 1980 to 1986, while some of it is quite well recorded, there's quite a lot of blind spots. So Ed did a really good job in sort of navigating those waters for me. So there's loads of interesting stuff in this episode to unpack, so I hope you all really enjoy it. Let's jump into it. One, two, fuck shit up. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine, Ed. How are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Thank you very much. Well, thanks very much for uh, granting an audience with me. Um, my background's just a picture of a, a venue in my city. The reason it's that is because my my room is usually just a state and covered in pictures and the lighting's a bit off. So if it is off-putting, let me know and I can take it off. Um, no, no, no. Yeah. Um, I was given your name by Metal Mike. Um, that's how... I initially came across you because I was asking him about uh, his time with Roadrunner. Um, he was somewhat elusive in terms of um, his his sort of role at the label um, because I know he was obviously doing the magazine at the same time. But I I, I kind of, it, it, he threw me a thread and I started pulling basically. So now I'm trying to pull the picture together of, of Roadrunner back in the 80s because it's, an, it's not a well-remembered time. It's not a well-spoken about time. Because I think it was 1987 when the US label opened, Monty Connor came in and started bringing in, you know, Sepultura and things like that. That that's when people seem to remember the label starting. So I'm I'm desperate to get all the knowledge and all the stories back from the before time and try and paint a picture of that. Um, I hope my right. question. Well, I know about I know about I can probably answer almost all your questions because I know everything. Uh, before that time, almost everything. Wow, we. Uh, and I've been there till '92. So, you, um, you were there for the great crossover from just a small label in Amsterdam over to when they were trying to branch out away from death metal and into all sort of the alternative stuff. So let's let's start from the start. Um, yeah. In our first exchanges, you mentioned that you worked from there in eighty from '85 through to '92. Although you did mm-hmm. some work with them. In '83, you seem to separate the two kind of tenures. So, if you want to tell me how your relationship began with um, with Roadrunner, we can just take it from there. You know, in the very beginning, in '82, I started working in the uh, at a wholesaler uh, called Verdes, and the uh, owner of Verdes was a shareholder. He was Casey's partner in Roadrunner. Okay, so the, I came in. You know, I, I worked in the warehouse and picked up stuff from factories and this is where I did some first work for Roadrunner because they manufactured close to Amsterdam and then I picked the stuff up, brought it to the distributor. Um, that's, that was my first, uh, let's say, dealings with the label. At the time it was Case, and there was a secretary, Wendy, and Dennis, as you said, like the, the PR guy. It was a small team. Mm-hmm. And there was one. There was one remark that I'd like to uh, correct. You know, there's, in the interview you sent to me, 
uh, of the older guy about the erotic DVDs. Yes. No. no. Ah, fantastic. If they would have been there, I would have known. I tell you, the very, the very beginning, you know, Case has a long history in music, and he used any work at major labels. Yes. And, and uh, the very first release on Broton, if I remember well, he did some uh, some children's music, some children's records. Okay. Uh, uh, kids' music, I mean, with it, right? So, so kids singing for kids. Right. And, okay. And then he had a spell with uh, uh, cassettes for translations. Okay. So if you would drive with your family to the south of France, you could learn French along the way on a cassette. Right. Right. And then the first couple of records he released, I think rock music was Jim Croce. I yes. actually just saw, I just saw recently uh, that BMG is re-releasing those Jim Croce catalog titles. But mm-hmm. Case had a relationship with Jim Croce from the past, so he released Jim Croce albums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he licensed in some uh, some rock stuff. He licensed from England yeah. you know, uh, some punk stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the UK subs he exploited. I was there at that time. I worked at Birds, but I wasn't involved with the stuff. I picked the stuff up at the factory. Yeah, yeah. And I also think through a UK label came Twisted Sister, the very first Twisted Sister album. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And around that time, when when Rodona was still, you know, going the punky route, and Twisted Sister was there, suddenly Twisted Sister hit big in the US. Right. And. That made the catalog album from uh, from Roadrunners, you know, sell quite some numbers, and I think that's that's the moment when Case pulled definitely towards rock and metal music. Ooh, okay, cool, cool. And you know, um, at that time when I worked at Wholesaler, though, you had you had from England, you had Venom, yep. Raven. They mm-hmm. were on this English label, Neat Music, and yep. I remember getting stuff in at Birders from Italy in, in in big numbers and. Case picked up that label and, you know, he picked up Venom and uh, that's when I came in because when Venom went on the road, mm-hmm. they actually uh, had Metallica open up for them on their first tour uh, through yeah. Europe and I was on that tour. I recently saw some pictures of that at home. Uh, I was uh, driving Venom, being representative and um, Metallica was opening up every night and that's that's right. when I got involvement and that's when I got involved with Case and... In 85, I had a choice. I could either, you know, do a different job at Verdes, going to sales, mm-hmm. or go to Amsterdam and join Roadrunner. And, you know, working in the music industry, for me, okay. was never wholesale. It was record label. So that choice was, wasn't that difficult. <laughs> and that, that, that's when I stepped in. So I had dealings with the label between 85 and 80, uh, or 82 and 85. Yeah. 85, I started my job in, uh, in Amsterdam. So let's focus a little bit on the Bertus stuff, because... Is Bertus an import-export operation, or is it a distribution operation throughout Benelux? Because I was just thinking, as a label, when Kay started it, he would have had everything then if he started it with uh, Jan van, den, uh, van der Linden, because he would have had the knowledge of working with Polygram and Phonogram, and then he will have had the distribution infrastructure from Bertus. So he had everything he needed to, to, to create a viable business, right? But when I was going through the old Discogs, um, records a lot of those first imports from the states they were distributed by different companies um that weren't bertus so i'm just wondering what where did bertus come into it with regards to those initial imports there was 
uh, Bird was, as far as I know, there was no connection distribution-wise. Right, okay. There was only a connection in, in the owner from Birders being, being Casey's partner and Roadrunner. And I think the only advantage that he has outside of there uh, is that at Birders, because at, at that time it was a wholesaler only. Um, okay. They could see on import, you know, what rock bands were selling well, and, and they could tip Case off in case, you know, uh, a band like um, H-Bomb from Friends, I think, is one of those bands which were in a small label in uh, in the south of the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And another band on that label, Merciful Fate. Yes. I think Merciful Fate I would regard as the first real proper signing from Case for a metal signing for Roadrunner. Yeah, I think there's a there's a small handful. I think I don't because they don't start signing direct signings until 1983. I think among the first was Merciful Fate, Satan, uh, Battleax, Mad Max, and Railway. I think those are the kind of like your first lineup. Right. Well, there were there were direct signings and there were licenses. Yes. Like Venom was a license, and I think the whole Metal Blade catalog was licensed. Yeah. Slayer. Yeah. Uh, Mega Force was licensed with Metallica. It was quite funny because in the beginning, when, when when you had Metallica and Slayer, mm-hmm. you know there was so much great stuff going on at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I remember most, you know, from the eighties. Like every year, there were innovations in metal. There was something new, and it was those two bands, uh, Metallica and, and Slayer. You know, they were genre innovators. Yeah, never got beaten. They the innovators never get beaten. You know, it happens in every happens in every musical genre. Yeah, there's somebody uh, develops it and 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 the initiator never gets beaten. And they sold almost the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it was unbelievable for years. They sold almost the same until, until Metallica had masses of puppets, and that's when they you know, took a big leap forward. But the first two records, and the, and the first two records from, from Metallica and Slayer, both, both sold almost uh, identically in Europe. Yeah. yeah. But it was a great time. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So... Um, you're leaving Bertus behind. You're you're going to Amsterdam every day, and you're walking into the office. What's your initial role at Roadrunner? Is it is it A and R? Is it marketing? Now, what I initially did over there was distribution side. So I right. uh, informed the distributors, uh, got the orders, manufactured at the factory, stock control, uh, making sure everything was shipped. That was my initial role. It later developed into promotion department, label management, right. I mean, okay. I was on international. Right, okay, fair enough. fair enough. It was a lot smaller back then than it became a few years later, so I probably held them back for a, <laughs> for a good portion. Now, but when I left, you know, Sepultura was there, the whole, let's say the whole uh, initial signings of Monty, you know, that all exploded in, into big. At, at, at the time, before Monty um, signed bands, you know, there were one or two big bands and suddenly there were 11 or 12. You know, mm-hmm. you had Annihilator, you had uh, Obituary, Sepultura, you name them, you know, they were all there. At that time in the in the mid-80s, we've, we're not at a point where Roadrunner is, is knocking out gold records every year. It's What was qualified as a success for Case? What was he satisfied with? I think Case is a little different from, from, from a lot of other uh, people that run independent labels, especially metal labels, because he had no he had no personal connection to the music. Yeah. Uh, which made him very, you know, 
good on the business side. And, and but what he was very, very good at, and I think where he beat everybody, and that's probably had to do with his experience, is that a he was a, a marketeer. Mm-hmm. So if he smelled blood, you know, he would go full in and, and he broke many, many bands. There's no label, there's no metal label in the world that broke as many bands as Roadrunner did. There still isn't. Yeah. You no, know, nobody did. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this is a this is a great uh, thing of him. And and the other thing is, you know, by by not having the personal attachment yeah. um, to the bands or to the music, he would always be rational. He would never overpay. You know, um, and, and, and I think but where, where, where he was really good was, although he didn't understand the musical genre fully, mm-hmm. he did want to have the bands from today and tomorrow. He never wanted to do, have anything to do with the bands from yesterday. And yeah. this is where I think, yeah, but this is something underestimated. I think this is where the big difference come from, uh, from Roadrunner and a lot of other labels, because in my, in my recollection, Roadrunner was up there. And there was a yeah. big gap until the second label came. And, and I think this this uh, drive that he had, like, you know, working with today's and tomorrow's bands and not be interested in yesterday's band, is made a difference. And mm. then you had Monty, you actually found today's and, and tomorrow's bands. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned about, you know, in terms of just how much they, they pumped out. I mean... I, I did some I did some sums at one point uh, a few months ago. I wish I had the data with me now, but I compared SPV, Roadrunner, Metal Blade, Neat, and in terms of actual products going out the door, Roadrunner was way up here. It, it was they were out they were outperforming them in terms of just getting things out the door and selling them by a country mile, perhaps even doubling the next per, uh, the next uh, label down, which I reckon I, I don't know who was the. I think Neat was the busiest because I think they'd started in like the mid seventies, so they had quite a catalogue behind them. But it wasn't long Music before Roadrunner. Sorry, Music for Nations, you know. They Music did, for Nations did. as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what you're just referring to with, with the amount of releases mm-hmm. is not down to you know signing, signing, no, signing. It was, it, it was down to it was down to representing labels in a license situation. So mm-hmm. Roadrunner mm-hmm. represented Metal Blade, uh, Megaforce, mm-hmm. Music for Nations, Neat. Um, and, and there was another one which I cannot recall the name from at the moment. Uh, Relativity, sorry, that yes. One. So, and they all together, you know, all their releases ended up on the Roadrunner release schedule. If if you take away all the all the license uh, um, material and you will go for the for the direct sign signs only, direct signs only, it's it's a lot less. It is a lot less. But yeah. would. Would the la- would the licensing arrangement would that generate a lot of money, or would I guess I guess I'm, I'm asking about margins here, aren't I? Because a direct signing where Roadrunner owns all the IP, they're going to make a lot more money than licensing a Slayer record. So I think the value in in outpacing the competition on licensing is it keeps the the cash flow steady and it keeps basically just keeps them in business, so that Roadrunner can then go out and innovate and find Merciful Fate and find Satan and find Railway. You know, it, it was a different time. You cannot compare uh, to today's world because now, if, if I open up uh, a metal magazine, if I open up Metal Mike's magazine, mm. and you go like, "There's hundred releases in there and hundred reviews," you go like, "Holy shit, who's buying all this stuff?" At that time, it was different. And Roadrunner had a real Roadrunner fan club in the Netherlands in the '80s. Can you imagine? Wow, you know, I had no idea. Yeah, there was, and and they went out and collected stuff because it was all 
uh, innovative at that time and, and wrote mm -hmm. on a broad forward great bands. And I mm -hmm. think, uh, you know, I was just telling you that Cage was interested in, in, in today's bands and tomorrow's bands, not yesterday's bands, which, was, mm -hmm. which set him apart. And then he was a marketeer, yeah. right? And it set him apart too, because if he smelled blood, he could break a band. Even after I left the company and I had my own label and I would look, you know, in the magazines, I could see Cage fingerprints all over it. If there was a <laughs> if there was a big release, uh, you know, and he broke many bands into into the big uh, into, into the big arena, mm -hmm. um, you know, that took a lot of money, skill, and and, and, and innovative thinking, and he, he was yeah. just fantastic at that. If you, I don't know, uh, I don't know your age, but but if you if you look back at Sepatura mm -hmm. and take the album Arise, mm -hmm. you know, and that was a typical case campaign. Sepatura yeah. was everywhere you couldn't open up a magazine and wow that was a full page ad again and what well, that was case of strategy he went full out so mm -hmm. he might have had you know bigger margins on on on, on his own signings but he mm -hmm. spent the money on it too so yeah there was real there was real marketing there were offices everywhere people everywhere and he was very very strict you know planning wise and, and what we needed to do and and the touring etc you know mm -hmm. it's uh it was, it was a smart businessman it's interesting because in Brian Slagle's book on Metal Blade, um, there's a passage in there where Case comes over to LA to talk about a, a licensing arrangement and he takes him to see Slayer. And obviously he's, he's an opera guy. He's not really a metal guy, but he walked away understanding the appeal. So I think that's all that he needed. With, with the business sense that he had, he didn't need to like metal. He just needed to understand the angle. And if he knew what, what was going to sell about a particular artist? That's you say. That's where the blood scent comes from. And he goes, okay, I can, I can definitely take advantage of this. Yeah. Well, he started Roadrunner not when he was twenty. You know, he had a, he had a, a full career behind him on major labels. He knew, yeah. you know. And there's a there's a band in the Netherlands called Q65, and Case was involved with that. And and they had a marketing campaign, which which was kind of a scandalous thing at that time. And, and Case had a finger in that. He was just a great marketeer. And I think in, in the case of Slayer, you know, Slayer was today's and tomorrow's band. It yeah. wasn't yesterday's band. Uh, you know, Case sees a band like that. He sees the audience. He sees the young kids. He knows enough. He doesn't necessarily have to have to understand the uh, the music, but yeah. the business side of it, he understood very very well. And I think he still does. Yeah. Regarding regarding Q sixty five, is this the uh, Apple Knockers flop house? Oh, that's a different one, isn't it? That's QB and the Blizzards. Um, Sorry, Q QB and the I meant. Did I say Q sixty five? Q sixty five. QB and the Blizzards. Sorry, I meant QB uh, and the Blizzards. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> I'm not telling you anymore either. My only two anecdotes about Case prior to 1980. There's a few passages in Billboard magazine uh, detailing his appointment within Polygram, Phonogram, Holland. But the only two I've got regarding bands are, one is Q65, where Case orchestrated a marketing event where the band would sail from London to uh, one of the ports in, in, in um, the Netherlands. And that's, and I don't know, I don't know what, I, don't, I can't remember what the album was or the record was, but the band were just sailing. <laughs> you just decide, we'll sail into this pot and hopefully we'll have a gig. And then that was quite successful. I can't remember the record. And then the Cube and the Blizzards one was um, the Apple Knockers Flophouse photo shoot, which was a party in a barn with strippers, which obviously at the time was rather scandalous. Uh, yeah. Everyone wakes up the next day. The farmers are pretty distraught that their wives are going to find these pictures of them having a pie yeah. with some strippers. But yeah, uh, so it's 
Those are the only two things. Was he, I'll ask, I, I asked this to anyone who, who obviously knew Case um, in any capacity, was he Black Sabbath's A&R guy in the, ni- in the 70s? Not that I know of. Okay. Could be, but not that I know of. Everyone seems to say there's no reason why not, because obviously Black Sabbath were Vertigo, Vertigo came under Polygram, so why right. not? But I think it was Gloria Cavallera's blog. Obviously, she managed Sepultura. Um, and and she, I think it was like a throwaway sentence. She says, you know, he used to A&R Black Sabbath. You listen to this guy. But since then, I'm like, was he actually Sabbath's A&R guy? But anyway, that's all um, just me trying right. to dig, dig and understand the enigma that is uh, Case Vessels. Um, I was speaking to um, Wally uh, Van Mittendorm the other week regarding some of the deals that would uh, that the direct signings would be approached with typically around 5,000 pounds or dollars or whatever uh, for the first album, um, six or seven albums with an option after the second or first or whenever. Um, Obviously case kept all the publishing. His thoughts on those deals were, they're not very good deals, but be- the thing about metal bands was there's a certain tenacity to them as people, and you can get away with giving them a, a not a, well, yeah you can get you can get away with giving them quite a rubbish deal because they're willing to work really hard for the opportunity. I think that's I might be I might be paraphrasing and I might not be doing it justice, but do you have any thoughts on why those deals are acceptable in the metal community, whereas perhaps an indie band might go five k? No, let's not do five k. I don't think it was the way Case thought about things. In mm-hmm. a way, he didn't want to miss out on the next big thing. But on the other side, you know, if you've got a couple of A&R people and they throw bands at you and you say no, and they go like, well, you got to do this one, you got to do this one, and you you end up with a, with a whole bunch of, of bands. Mm-hmm. And then I think I think Case just went back to the A&R guy and said like, well, you know, if you want them, this is a deal. And he would do that because it was cheaper. It wasn't a major investment. But I, I must say like, Sepultura is one of those examples. Sepultura, I think, initially was on, was, on, was on a deal maybe less favorable than they got later. But mm-hmm. when the moment, you know, when he smelled blood with them, they were on the road opening up for, I forgot, and I was at the, I think they were Sodom. on the road with Bunny it. With yeah? who, sorry? Sodom. Yes, you're right. They were on the yeah, road Sodom. with Sodom. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they just, you know, they just basically, that's where, that's where the band initially broke over here. Yeah. And that's when Case stepped up, you know, made the investments and, and just broke Sepultura into the big league. They, they, they toured big. That's that's the thing that, that people forget a lot of times. Because I think if, you know, I've, I've been in this business for 38 years. Uh, um, I worked for Case for, let's say, seven in Amsterdam and, and, and three years away from Amsterdam before mm-hmm. that. And he is a uh, entrepreneur. And, and, I, and I just consider him my mentor. I mean, as I said, his fingerprinted all over the company. Without case, it, it, it wasn't the same company anymore. You could see it. The moment it was sold, it went, you know, in, in a different direction because yeah. the guy who initiated everything and who, and who basically uh, made the fire was gone. And yeah. I think the coolest thing about, about uh, case was running the company. Yeah, he was a tough business guy, but he was also, the organization was big and he knew uh, who would be best in what position in the company. And he could, yeah. um, you know, force creativity, 
that we stay on the ball marketing wise and, and the goal was always success. He's a book publisher now, you know, yeah. very successful. And he said he's having, you know, his number one hits and that's, that's what drives him. You know, the, 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 the visual success so a number one chart, a front cover or a great press that that's case's biggest driver. It's not about other things. It's about yeah. success. It's interesting how we, we say he's a hard businessman, but it, it and obviously with, with the, the strategy with the bands is, is kind of low risk, low yield, unless we have the breaking point. And then, he, he, you know, as you say, he smells the blood, he gets in there. But one thing that I don't think people who follow Roadrunner quite understand is just how well he looked after his people. A lot of the time when um, I speak to, especially with the Roadrunner UK guys, even when people get sacked or they let go or they leave or do whatever, Case is always there to say, all right, if you need a buffer, if you're going to be out of work for three months, I'm happy to provide you a buffer. I mean, my favorite one is is with Gary Levermore, um, who was um, with uh, Roadrunner UK in the early 90s. Um, Case was the guarantor on his house after he'd left the company. <laughs> it was just wonder, wonderful little uh, moments of, of pure um, kind of it just demonstrates a really strong relationship between case and the people that he was relying on to make the business successful. And I think that's a factor in how the day-to-day operations ran, which people don't appreciate quite as much. Yeah. I think that a lot of people work there for a very long time. And yeah. I think if, if you're, if you're a, a bad employer, that doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, you get a lot more rotation. People work for a long time, but, but, but at that time it was also, a very cool place to work. It was one of the coolest, you know, independent labels in the world mm-hmm. until we left. You know, and then, then the spirit went gone. But I think yeah. the company got so big and I might be wrong. Uh, and I never asked case actually, but I think signing Nickelback is both great and, and deadly because suddenly you have a band that sells millions. Right. And, and it changes everything. It's a game changer in everything. It brings good things or bring bad things. Because a band like that, if they release a record one year and they don't release a record the year after, you know, your, your year probably financially looks very different. Um, yeah. And I just think that band got, got big, you know, maybe too big. And that changes things because then, then you want another pop band and then you want another million seller. And I think, you know, what I remember, um, from case back in the eighties that what he wanted is his life achievement with Roadrunner was a number one uh, single in America and he got mm-hmm. it with Nickelback, you know, and he was always, uh, you know, licensing in this and, and, and making a deal with another label that might have pop music cause he wanted to break in the, in that, uh, in that arena. And suddenly from his own stable, you know, came Nickelback and there was his number one record. It is interesting. You know, and it's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's, uh, it takes organization, takes financial investment. Um, you know, so you have to have a lot of respect for that. Yeah, I mean, it, when you do look at the output of the label all the way up to 2012, there is a lot of licensing going on. There's a lot of acquisition of smaller labels, a lot of work being done. And then as soon as um, Case leaves and, and the label is bought up, it's just well, just sticking with the uh, the direct signings and, and the, uh, the money makers there. So it's, it's interesting what you say that, when Nickelback did go, I think it was it was I don't think that was ten platinum. I think that was two thousand five's um, maybe not the long road. What's the one called? All the right reasons. That's the one that was ten times platinum. But in two thousand one, Silver Side Up was you know platinum in its own right. Once you start, once when you start making those numbers, as you say, it 
there's a cash flow consideration to be made, but also there is an attention. There's like, a, how do I phrase, how do I phrase this? All of a sudden, your revenue puts you in a different category in terms of the record industry. If you were to to call it a league, so as soon as you start turning over a certain amount of million dollars a year, your name is next to the majors, and I guess that kind of creates interest from an investor perspective, and therefore changes the expectation. So even though Sepultura are a great band and everyone loves them, on an individual le- uh, level. They might not sell as much as Nickelback. And when you put the two next to each other, they might make money, but they won't make as much money as Nickelback. And if that could change how the label is completely perceived, I think. I think I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to articulate, but I think yeah, you might know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, even replacing a Sepultura is difficult. Yeah. Because you know, they're a big selling band and, and, and they, had a, they had a bunch of them at that time in the period that you talk about. And I think when... You know, sometimes a company can get so big and you need more investment and, and, and you get, you know, uh, investors in the company and the investors change change things. Yeah, maybe not for the maybe not for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, I never talked to Case about it afterwards. I just know at some point he was I think bitter after selling uh, the company because I think he sold all his gold records. Oh. Uh, oh. There you go. He's not attached he's not attached to the musician, but that that's you know, that's a sign of that he was kind of fed up with it yeah yeah which makes but sense he's a hard, he, he was a hard-working guy he was always you know i don't know how he did it mm-hmm. uh, i don't travel to new york as, as much as i do for my company but but there's always um you know case did it every two weeks he would spend a week in new york be back in amsterdam two weeks uh, spend a spend a week in new york be back so, so how, how the hell did you do that and he would say, like, well, you know, two days before he would fly out, he would start eating lunch at the, at the time zone and were, when he was flying into. The energy of the guy, like, unbelievable. Like, all, always at work and always switched on. That's awesome. So he was very focused on, on, on you know, it's, it's, not, it's for a reason that Road when I got as big as, as it became. Because I initially think, you know, when, when he had a partner in Jan, and if Jan would have bought the shares, you know, Jan would not have been able to make Roadrunner into what it became. Uh, case was. Because mm-hmm. he wrote this. Let's talk about Jan then. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm trying to do is because obviously Case gets, as you say, he he's the focal point of the label because he is the, the innovator. He is the intra- entrepreneur. At the very start then, is Jan financing this? off the back of Bertus or is he just a partner and he's just ta- uh, tackling the logistics while Case does the innovation I'm just trying to understand like okay, I'd be really surprised if I went to like the, the Netherlands company's house and I saw where Roderick was registered and I saw two directors if I saw two directors I'd be like wow there was two people not just Case you know what I mean it, I'm just yeah. trying to understand where you are fitting it all you know, it wasn't part of the deal that they made, of course, but I'm pretty sure, you know, it was a financial deal whereby Jan financed Roadrunner and, and had half the shares. Mm. But they were very, very different characters where Jan is fantastic in, in the money side and, yeah. and logistics side. And Case is a marketeer. So Jan likes to save money and Case likes to spend money. You know, so they were different characters. And, I, you know, they had verbal fights in the end, which were quite, uh, you know, quite astonishing. So they had to, they had to part ways. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, both. both my, my, I would say, um, Case has always been, as I said, an entrepreneur with a goal and, and you know, one hundred percent music man. You know, a, a record company guy, just yeah. born to, born to do this. Um, and I think Jan was more of the structural, uh, money structure, saving money. You know, or if there was something, if he had to buy something, or, or we had manufacturing discussions, prices, he would always be in there and try to get the price as low as possible. While Case on the other side was, you know, making the turnover and, and building mm. the custom. Right, right. Which in the end, for the label, was the most important part. Sure, sure, yeah. So I want to talk about what the catalyst was for Case to expand internationally and open those other offices. But I also want to ask you, regarding the time of the Amsterdam office, do you have any memories of like, have you got any stories or memories of the Amsterdam office in its isolation? So before anything else opens up, are you going into the office on the morning? Does Case provide the coffee or you're bringing your own coffee? Is, is, is Mike there with 10 bands and Case is saying, Mike, calm down. I'll wait. I'll speak to Jules or something like that. I think we were there. Mike wasn't there 100% of the time. Uh, and, um, I think he, has ma- he had his magazine upstairs for a while, but he was, yeah. he was, he was in Eindhoven. And, and the Amsterdam office had Case. It had a secretary, Wendy. Uh, um, there was an accountant. Um, his secretary and his accountant, S. Dennis, and another guy that worked there all had relationships from in case, uh, with case from the past, from the seventies, right, from okay. where, where, where he uh, where, where he functioned, um, and I was there, and then Mike did uh, did PR also. They were yep. also guy at uh, times, and then um, I think there was a guy called Louis who, who replaced Dennis mm-hmm. uh, as a PR guy, mm-hmm. and Louis was you know he's a, he's a, he's a, he was a character. All the bands loved him. You know, he was very good. I had a little bit more difficult time with him because he was from the 70s. It was a little bit more loose. And, and I might have been more in cases corner, you know, with wanting the results and, and, and making sure, you know, you're fighting for the careers from the bench. You want to have results. And at that time, it was actually funny because you could, you, could, you could make funny deals with, uh, with magazines over, over, over space. Right, okay. And that, that was a lot of fun part. And I think... Uh, the first office, as, as I remember, I think there was a guy in Germany, mm-hmm. a guy called Ua. Uh, on LinkedIn, I still see him. I think he's involved in Dusseldorf in Germany with, I think, merchandising. Okay. Uh, Uwe Lair, he, he was in Germany doing you know, PR. And I think this, the second uh, person was in the UK. And, and if I remember well, the UK was the second office that opened. No, New York was the second office that opened. Mm-hmm. And then came the UK. Yeah. 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 Correct. Okay. Interesting. I try and yeah, in, in my head and building a family tree, if you will. Yeah, and in the New York office there was uh, Holly Lane mm-hmm. and Steve Ricardo. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think it was Holly who brought forward Carnivore, which which later we could became typo negative. Mm-hmm. And I think she brought forward Whiplash. Oh, okay. Then, Whiplash as well. And Steve brought the Grey Cat, as we know. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still thank him for that. <laughs> now, Ken was great, you know, like uh, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, and still going. So that, that, that's how that's how the New York office started, and the New York office, in, in the end, I would say, replaced all the all the license deals, because suddenly mm-hmm. he was closer to the fire, you know, and, and he he would have bands from New York, and 
have a distribution set up in the uh, in America. And I think, you know, that took a big investment to do it from uh, from the Netherlands. And he went basically, he went to the home of his competitors, to the home country mm-hmm. of his competitors, and, and to beat them. You know, and that's what that's what he did. Right. Okay. Because my question was going to be, what was, the, what was the catalyst that made him want to expand internationally? Was it because they just made so much money that it made sense? But actually, you're kind of like hitting the nail on the head. If he's after blood, he's going to yes. go to where the bands are going to go and go, right, okay, yeah. here we go. Here's the market share. We've now got 1%. I, Let's I make heard, it big. I heard once, I heard once uh, from somebody from, uh, from that 70s uh, period, but I don't know if that's 100% true. Um Case had a little, when he was traveling a lot, he had a little bit of distrust to people in the office, like, you know, if they would be there in time or leave in time. And, and I think it all came, uh, I think Louis told me, and it all came back because in the later stage, uh, after Polygram, I think it was a distribution company, which was a little bit luxurious, with, um, and that went bust. And he was walking around with, uh, you know, with, with a whiskey at 11 in the morning, you know, case, <laughs> being, being rock and roll, right? And I think because that company went bust, he, he kind of became a little bit the laughing stock of the of his old colleagues at the major labels. And I think okay. the drive to prove them like, you know, I'll show you. You know, and, and I think this is the drive behind everything. That that's what somebody told me, you know, closer to him than uh, than I was. And it could have well been the case. Because, you know, it was wow. he definitely went went and proved uh in you know, his work. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> the moral yeah, of our so case, the New York office, yeah, office, I think, was a first strategic um, action, just, you know, to, for A&R purposes, you know, go to the country where, where your competitors are, where the bands are, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and beat them. And, and I think that's, 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 a, that's been the drive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Are you aware of how the imprints operated? Because I know when... When the U.S. office was opened, it was done off the back of the deal with Importance. There was a Mergo, there was Hawker, dealing with alternative and indie and hardcore. Then there was, obviously, Road Racer was just Roadrunner, but obviously to mitigate the legal complications of having a name such as Roadrunner. Then there's RC and Roadster, and I can't quite get what they're exactly for. Well, I told you before that, that you know, Kate was always looking for the next big thing. At the same time, yeah. you know, there was a lot of bands <laughs> thrown at him. And I think in a way, Roadrunner was his prestige, prestigious uh, brand, right? And, and I would say Road Racer initially was the American brand where I think Carnivore and Whiplash were released on Road Racer. Uh, Emergo, Case has always been looking for hits, you know, and breaking into other territories. And I think Emirigo was just that, you know, doing a different type of music than Roadrunner was doing. And maybe, yep. you know, uh, pop band could come from that. And RC, I would say, you know, I might say this wrong. We were always in- internally uh, laughing and calling it RC, oh, real cheap. You know, that, that, that does mean real cheap. Uh, <laughs> this this is where this is where I would say more experimental bands came on that, that didn't cost that much, but you, you wanted to give it a chance. It wasn't it wasn't roadrunner okay. material at that time. You know, they could grow into it, but it was more of an experimental step up label, I would say. You know, there was I think there was a thought behind it. And Roadster was the publishing division. Oh okay. It was never a label. I cannot Would... recall it ever being a label. 
would that then be superseded in a few years by the All Blacks? Yeah. Because the All Blacks was sure. the like the publishing and licensing arm, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think that was that makes, it, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. It was a structural thing. Cool. Yeah. Right. Cool, cool. Um, this might be a shot in the dark, but the, one of the gaps I have, um, the story of how Merciful Fate was signed is quite well is quite well recorded. Um, but Carnivore, I can't find anything as to how Holly or Jules or Case or anyone found Pete Steele. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> I was wondering, would, do you have any clue? That's all. Even Mike, I don't even think Mike knew how. No, I, I think this is a Holly Lund. It must be Holly. I have it in, I have it in my, in my uh, recollection as, as Holly finding this band from New York, as mm-hmm. uh, as was uh, Whiplash. And at the time when they were on the road, you know, Biohazard, um, Evan and I had a talk with him and he wanted to be on Roadrunner. And at the time, Casey didn't want to do it. And uh, yeah, it came later, of course, and, and, and then became a big success. But I, I think Holly was in the New York office, and I think you probably wanted to have American bands, and, and she, I think she brought forward Whiplash and, and, and Carnivore. Those yeah. were the two things. And um, I, 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 don't, I don't think... Um, I think Mike, Mike might have tipped Case on Merciful Fate. Mm. Yeah, and on a few other things, um, most definitely, I think so. Because Merciful right. Fate was already in the, quite on the way up, up over here. Um, yeah. But I think the American office did his own thing. And I think when, when Monty came in, and Monty can confirm that to you, I think Monty initially was, was a PR guy. But he knew yes. every record. And he knew, and he knew oh, this is song, on, uh, song eight on the record. Or... And Kay said, you know what, you need to be an A&R. And then they became the A&R guy, you know. And I think it was a brilliant move because Monty yeah. was an A&R guy and, and, and you know, he got all the chords. And suddenly, you know, just developed. There's a whole, like, side narrative to Monty regarding, like, what... I think he refers to them as, themselves as the three musketeers. So there's Monty, there's Borovoy, who would go on to do Blabbermouth, and there's Don Kay who wrote for Kerrang! Yeah. And those are like, just the three amigos in cahoots always sharing bands with each other. And that's where a lot of that initial networking came from. I think that's really interesting, especially these days when you have like an oversaturation of information and um, with bands coming out of your ears and Spotify and all these things. It's really interesting that so many great things were channeled through these three people. And obviously they're manifested in um, great Roadrunner acts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, there was no Spotify. There was no YouTube. It was, it was tape trading, or yeah. you know, and going to shows and, and, and hearing great things. Yeah. I, I think Monty Borovoy, Don K. I think Borovoy for sure and Monty. Yes. Yeah. 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 Was a good um. So, how did um, your relationship with Rodner come to a close? So, if we're we're at now the point where the international offices are open, there's a war on all fronts for market share. I presume. Um, and what role are you taking on by this point? Because you say you came in on the distribution side, and then you started working your way into other factors or other other parts of the in, of, of the business. Yeah, I got put into the PR department, mm. so I, mm. I did the PR department and worked with all the uh, initially. You know, I would I would drive to Germany or talk to everybody. I would do the PR all over Europe, mm. you know, with a phone. There was no computer. You couldn't send an email. 
you just, you know, every week we would go to the post office with, you know, we would piles of uh, LPs packed to be sent all over Europe. And then I would follow it up with calls with the media to do interviews, get reviews. Yeah. Uh, because it was so much work, it made sense on a, at some point, you know, to have a UK office and to have somebody in France and to, you know, to just get the offices everywhere. Um, and, and I think that that's what Case, uh, what Case built. You know, mm-hmm. making sure you sign you sign the right bands and also be able to you know do the job uh, properly. I came to an end with the label in '92, and mm-hmm. uh, not on bad conditions. Just what I'm doing right now with this label. Uh, you know, when I was 12, I had two dreams. Mm-hmm. I either wanted to be a Formula One driver, it didn't work out because <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> supported at home, um, or I wanted to be in the music industry, and that's something I could do. All right, I, I could get myself into that industry, and I was lucky that a company like Birders was was around the corner where I lived. And I yeah. just stepped in there. Um, <laughs> but so along the way, you know, what I'm doing right now was always it wasn't all planned initially, but it always, you know, from inside I need to do this. You know, and then that's why I left the road one. I, I, I left for like '92. I went into the advertising business for six months. Hated it. <laughs> I hated being out of the music industry, so I got my way back, and I could either crawl on my knees to case and I, and then there was another option with a company that said work here and, and then I thought like you know if I ever want to do my own thing it's now yeah and this you know that's what I went on on to do so I still mm-hmm. speak to case every once in a while you know is if he I have okay? a question about case doing great he's a book publisher yeah and of course very successful works with Howie you know, doesn't he Howie Abrams I, I think the book publishing is probably as big as love. Right? I don't think the music ever was as big as love because musically, he's into opera. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he does. He doesn't really care. Uh, you know about metal. He cares about metal, but he doesn't care about it. You know, like a fan. Mm. He would go into a, he would go into a store to buy a new audio system for for, for the office, mm-hmm. and then he brings a record from Obituary as a reference, like. <laughs> <laughs> the first obituary record so in the store there was a there was a thought you know it went nuts but you know that, that's when he liked metal uh, yeah. but otherwise i think he was more of a guy who just wanted to make you know economic um um use of the situation you know putting it into yeah. an economic situation favorable uh, situation did case support you leaving the label was it was it, or was he pretty reluctant to let you go <laughs> i tell you something i think everybody Everybody who worked for Roadrunner for a longer time will probably have ever had a similar situation with Case, because that tells you the person he is, you know. I, I left Roadrunner, I always loved it, and, and I was never uh, offended by officers taking work away from me. But um, at the office in Amsterdam, he hired one or two people, especially one people, I hated that person. He just destroyed the whole atmosphere. You know, uh, and some, and one morning I put my key in the door, and you know, and my hand didn't, I didn't want to turn. I turn it, I open the door, and and I do one step in the office, and I thought like, I don't want to be here anymore. You know, and what I did, uh, I went straight to case without giving it any thought. I went straight to case. I said, case, I'm leaving. And he was just you know doing his his, his uh, not email but facts. I don't know, looking at the paper. I said, case. He said, I'm leaving. All right, you know, then, and then he went on reading. 
it's so typically a case, right? Untouchable, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but but it's not in a bad way. You know, I, I think in a way, looking back right now, I, I think um, I've had many many questions from people soon when I left the road run about all sort of situation. I never ever answered them. Hmm. You know, and and to this day, I would never say anything bad about case because I can't. Hmm. Right? And uh, he's always been extremely honest, straight up. You know, tough guy, honest. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much from him. I couldn't do what I do today, you know, without having worked for him because I cannot learn this into school. And I just had, I just had to move on. You know, yeah. but I know, uh, but I know from people, uh, you know, in, in in the office, like they have similar similar things. But that's probably, you know, <laughs> he, he wasn't the people's people. He was just, you know, case running a business, not having time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, once in a time, I don't know which band this was, but it was this band and, and they were not really happy an American band I think they were from San Francisco somewhere mm-hmm. and they had this manager guy about you know six foot eight or so like huge guy long hair and Case was behind the same desk that I was just telling you about you know reading a paper doing exactly the same thing and this guy was like going nuts shouting at Case you know and just with his hand on the on Case's desk like to get his attention and you know and he was very very mad and, and when he and when he just after five minutes when he was done shouting just Case looked up and he went like oh, you're finished you know and <laughs> just stop you know he, he didn't he, you could never get uh, that close to him yeah you know and I think that's always always been his, his strongest uh, thing um, yeah yeah that's awesome. Um, yeah, well, we're not, we're, we're, we've never been on bad terms, and I think he kind of respects you know, me going this way. One of his A&R guys that got him Nickelback works for us in New York. He runs our Newark office, Ron Berman. Yes. And I think, yeah, and there's not a PR person that worked for Roadrunner later, Lauren, that works here in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the headquarters. So there's always ties, and I think you find Roadrunner people everywhere. You know, wherever yes. company you go, there's somebody there. This is the They're problem with this school. project because I'll, I'll just speak to obviously try and collate all the stories that I possibly can. But the more I speak to people, the more I realize like rats, I, they're everywhere. People, roadrunner people everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's bands as well for you uh, under mascot. Sadus, Heathen, Blackstone Cherry, Black Lotus Society, all roadrunner, uh, graduated from roadrunner college and uh, made their way to your shows. At some point, yep. I never went after them at that time mm-hmm. because I, I think when I started this label, I did a few metal bands and then, you know, there were so many records coming out and I was too far away from where the fire was, all right? So mm-hmm. uh, it was all in America and Case once told me, he said, if you want to succeed in America, you go and live there. And I'm actually planning that right now, you know, in the next couple of years to move mm-hmm. to Los Angeles for half of my time because this is where our biggest growth area is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just too far away and I was always too late with, with getting the bands, the, the newest bands. So, and, I, and I'm a guitar fan, so I kind of followed my, my heart into the guitar world. Um, <laughs> but when we developed, um, we signed one, I would say, metal band in, in the mid-2000s, uh, 2005, and that was Volbeat. You know, and that was a good one. Yep, yep. Uh, uh, but, I also made, but I also made my mistakes in the beginning. I signed a band in, in the 90s called The Circle. You ever heard of them? No. Yeah, they're a Dutch band, and they were very young. Yeah. Uh, they were below 18. One of the guys' uh, uh, father was a lawyer. We made a deal. Mm-hmm. 
right? I think a three album deal with publishing. And then they did a show in, in their hometown and it all looked a little, you know, I wouldn't say spinal tap, it just wasn't ready yet, mm-hmm. you know, but there, there was something there, it just wasn't ready yet. And then I didn't want to let them go in and, and I let them go. Uh, and, and I think about a year or a year and a half later, there was a female vocalist joining them and I changed the name into Within Temptation. Uh, <laughs> years were right at the beginning, but that, that one that got away. But I think we all have, we all have those. It's not the only one I tell you, there's a few others. But, you know, we all have those things. You know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And I think uh, I just went down the guitar path and then later, you know, with Volbeat and when we got back into the uh, uh, rock and metal uh, arena, we're getting there more and more. Mm. Um, and I, from Jan, Jan van der Linde, I bought Provo. He started Provo Records in the 90s. Right. And I bought, it from, I bought it from him in 99 and we we're pretty successful with that label, having a yeah. lot of you know, good um, artists on there that are you know, doing well worldwide. And now we're just getting back into the uh, hard rock and the, and the metal arena. How is uh, Jan doing these days? As we, we, I kind of surmise that he's probably retired in the same case. Yeah. As far as I know, he is retired. Yeah. I don't. I, I kind of lost track because um, he has a house in the south of France where he worked a lot, and, and uh, he retired from Veritas. And I cannot really tell what he's doing at the moment. Okay. I don't think we have to worry about him, but he's. Uh, He's, he's all right. You know. <laughs> That's okay then. That's all that matters. So what did you do differently with Mascot, having learned your trade from Roadrunner? Was there anything you went in going, okay, well, Case did things this way, but I want to do it this way? I never compared, in a way. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm more of a fan, and I'm, I'm, I'm a softer person than Cases. I'm not as tough as Cases. <laughs> uh, I like to have a great relationship with all the artists. Yeah. I know them almost all... Um, you know, and I just enjoy success. That is, I think, something we share with with Case. I'm not as much money driven. I'm I'm, I'm success driven. I like to see a front cover story, a number one chart position. You know, a great playlist. Um, just being active, play our role in uh, play our role in there. Yeah, uh, and we're just getting more because because the New York office. Uh, you know, we're get, we're getting more rock and metal bands in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I still enjoy that an awful lot. It's yeah, just, yeah. you know, it's a different world now than it was in the 80s. Sure. Sure. You know, the, the world changes very, very fast. Yeah, yeah. For Is the, music, where... industry, for the music industry, for the better, I would say. I think we're about to hit... I, I, I'm pure, I don't know this stuff. I'm just some, some, some idiot who wants to learn what happened with Roadrunner. But um, it's interesting. We've kind of like been in this weird purgatory with streaming as a revenue stream for about 10 years now. So it feels like there's not been a workable strategy to really monetize the music as an IP for a long time. You know, if, if you go on YouTube, uh, you can find something from every era, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. you, can, you can look into the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and just look how people change yeah. in, in all those decades. And the world changes along with it. Uh, and I think, you know, nothing will ever be the same as in the past. Uh, and, and, and it's not as bad. Uh, you know, some things are, are for the better. Mm-hmm. I think what, what I liked a lot in, in, in the 80s, you know, that there was a new record coming, whatever it was, whoever it was, you know, band that I like, and oh, they, they're recording this new record coming. And you just had to wait for eight weeks or 10 weeks before you could hear something. Mm. Now somebody says like, oh, I heard there's a new song from uh, such and such. And you go, oh, there it is. 
yeah. you know, the patience is gone and there's an awful lot coming. But but I, what I do think that the great thing uh, about this era for the music industry is like, you can, we can communicate directly, you know, with the consumer. Meaning we can send them songs, videos. Well, in the past, you always had to go through channels. Uh, one of the things important to this label, to the success of this label in the beginning, was MTV Headbangers Ball. We had a Swedish band called, called Bithang, and I think that was our sixth release or so, or seventh mm. release. Mm. Um, and Vanessa Warwick played the video on Headbangers Ball. That was a show, you know, between midnight and 2 a.m., I think. But, you know, every metalhead was either watching it or recording it. So you had a very uh, large uh, reach. Yeah. And it opened up a new door, because otherwise you were always depending, like, is a record store buying it and, and, and putting it in the store? You know, is a magazine going to write about it? And, and are they going to write good about it? You know, mm -hmm. or bad? And, and when? You know, there was all these factors. And now that's all, it's still there, you know, mm -hmm. but there's another world next to it where you can present bands uh, uh, in, in a different way. So I think it's for music people right now, if, if you're a music consumer, uh, in, my, in my time and age, you had to search or you had to wait until a song was on the radio if you didn't mm -hmm. have to buy it. Now everything is on demand. Mm -hmm. Right. If, if if I hear a song from Hey, who is this? And I go on Shazam and I and I hear what it is, and I go on YouTube. Um, you know, there you go. And then you or you go on Spotify, and yeah. people people who uh, let's say who hear about Jimi Hendrix but don't know what it is, and they go on YouTube and they check Hendrix videos. Mm -hmm. At some point, they're going to hit a Joe Bonamassa video, right? Which is yeah. the connection is always there. You get there. Yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. a wonderful world for if, if your music, if you're interested in music, it's a wonderful world to do research, you know, and you can see concerts from all sorts of periods. I, I think it's wonderful. So speaking yeah. as a music fan, but also as, let's say, as, as, as a record label, you know, I think this is the best world we ever lived in. Musical mm -hmm. music. There's a lot of it and everything has been done. It's more, it's more difficult to get noted, but it's not impossible. I think, uh, you know, and maybe this is because of, of formatting, uh, at radio stations, especially in America, originality doesn't necessarily play a role commercially, right? Because mm. you need to have a good song. But in the 80s, uh, especially in the time when all the metal labels came, came along, you know, you know, being innovative was what it was all about, you know, being an original. Yeah. It wasn't about the commerciality of it. It was about how original are you, you know, and how much different and better and newer are you than, than anything else. Mm. So mm. I think that's gone a little bit. You know, I know it's more about other things. They're still great, uh, you know, great innovative bands, but I think the song, you know, uh, hopefully the, the, the great songwriters will come back again because I think that's, that's lacking a little bit. In the yes. Overall world, yeah? There's almost an algorithmic approach to what's going to get pushed from a songwriting perspective, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully, well, it's kind of, as you say, the where there is a place of pure saturation, quite a lot of saturation, even if the innovators aren't quite as marketable as they used to be, the innovators are now a little bit extra special for music fans because they've they diamonds yeah. in the rough now. Yeah, well, if you look if you look at a band like Slayer, mm. you know they, they were instantly big, and it was like, wow, was it this? Mm. And then I think somewhere two thousand five, six, four, they had a. Uh, let's say a period where they were less popular because mm -hmm. I remember going to a festival and they were playing when, when it was still daylight, I think it's four in the afternoon, four or, or right before, right after Motorhead. So that was maybe not the best time because that's 
uh, another band were popular, but then, you know, they worked their way up again. Mm. And I think mm. that they, they ended on the highest note possible. Definitely. You know, and they would never, ever have thought about that when they started out. Yeah. You know, and I think it just shows, for me, you know, Metallica was always uh, the band with the songs. Mm-hmm. And Slayer, for me, was the band with the riffs. You know, nobody ever beat the Slayer riffs, and it will never happen. No. You know, it was, like, totally unique and cool. I'm eagerly looking forward to Kerry King's solo stuff. I imagine it'll sound just a lot like Slayer, but with a different, some different ingredients thrown in there. But it should be yeah. fun. Uh, I've got one more question. Unless there's other Roadrunner stuff you want to talk about, um, I, that I might have missed. Uh, I only have one more question for you. Uh, on the Roadrunner side, I, I can only say, like, you know, Case was a very connected guy. So one one tremendously important aspect is touring. Right? And he was able to get his band on the road on big tours. Mm. You know, not to be underestimated, because I think this is this is where you break a band. You know, remember when 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 a band like Biohazard broke big on the Dynamo Festival, mm. they did the tour and then you know he put Doc E Doc as as, as yeah. the opening act on the tour and that's where Doc E Doc went. And it was it was like an old special era, you know, when, when things like that were possible that he could instantly uh, because the bands were on his label and through his connections, he, he could put those bands together. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's a very uh, important part yeah. of the whole yeah. thing because the life business is where it happens, where where you, where you see your bands and where you get, if you don't like a band, you know, and if you see them live, you know, you could fall in love overnight. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of makes sense as well it. when um, Wordrunner is kind of responsible for kind of creating subgenres in a weird way sometimes. I mean, you had the Florida death metal scene in the early nineties and my yeah. kind of entry point was kind of the Ameri- the new wave of American metal or metal core kill switch engage trivium dragon force machine head. That's my little yeah. kernel. Oh, um, yeah. That feels like it's by design as well. I think that's more, that's more Monty than case, but it's interesting that there are some instances like when you look at the liner notes of certain records, especially with like Florida death metal, it's same producer, similar kind of vibe. It's like Roadrunner wanted to be the death metal factory, the metalcore factory. If you like a particular genre, it's, it's ours. It's, it's almost a proprietary genre because Roadrunner do it best. And that's kind of a weird innovation, which um, is almost, almost totally unique to them. Yeah, well, I think the whole death metal era and the extreme bands, that's Monty. Yeah, right? and every, every band raised the bar, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, like Machine had raised the bar. So did Fear Factory. You know, they yeah. just raised the bar, and and yeah. I think Slipknot came from another corner, but Slipknot raised the bar again. Yeah, you know, and I think that must have been probably his first million seller. Or was it yes. Nickelback? No, I think I, it was Slipknot, right? I think it was Slipknot by by a margin of about twelve months. It was all. It was quite a hectic year. I think yeah. Iowa was 99. Oh, no, in fact, I'm not going to... My my timeline for Slipknot isn't too great, but I know it was kind of like between 99 and 2001 is kind of like that's where the sweet spot is. Where they I, don't think, you know, I don't think I ever heard any any words in the company like, oh, oh, you got to sound like such and such. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never, ever heard it, but this is down to case one and have tomorrow's bands. And today's bands and not yesterday bands because yeah. it doesn't bring anything if you got the original why do why do you want to have a copy of it because mm-hmm. it will never be as successful but you know it's, it's also the scene and, and bands want to work with certain producers 
Yeah. Um, you know, to sound like this. You know, when Metallica released the, the Black album, everybody wanted to have that sound because it was kind of a you know a new innovation again, and and that always happens. And and I think Case, I never ever heard Case say like you know oh uh, you know it doesn't sound commercial enough. It was always about the A&R guy. You know, are the right songs there? Do we have great songs for for the album? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that that was what uh, what mattered because the. Uh, the original bands got the furthest. You know, the mm-hmm. one the innovators always got uh, got the furthest. And there's always, you know, as I said, the progression. There was always one band, you know, and then there was another band getting into new territory, more extreme, you know, and it was it was a, a great great time. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think I don't I don't see that coming back uh, again. And I think where, where a lot of uh, people in all sorts of businesses, but maybe especially in the music business, mm-hmm. industry people like to like to hold into into what they know. Right. So if a band, this is a very, you know, maybe this is a wrong, completely wrong example. But if you take George Michael in the Sony years, mm-hmm. right, and then and when he fought his way out, yeah. From what I understand, it was for creative reasons because the record label said like, no, 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 you you appeal to uh, this and this audience, and this is mm-hmm. what you need to sound like. And he yeah. would go like, no, you know, and. When he got free, and I think then he got even bigger successes because yeah. it was about innovation and the songs. And I think this is something that that I think they always supported in the bands. You know that they would go into territory that was new, because mm-hmm. you know innovation brings success and it brings you forward. Mm-hmm. And that's what I always heard. It was never like, oh, you know, you sound like this band or this band is successful. Try to sound like this. I never ever heard it in a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that should be the record company's job anyway. You know, it just yeah. looked like. Do you have the songs? Is the record great? You know, and what's the timing of it all? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting because there was a quote from Case which I found, but I can't find it again. I don't know where he said it, but it was something like at the start of the Roadrunner tenure. There's too many experts, and there's too many people who claim to know the industry. You need to empower the artists to make us money, not the you know, not the other way around. <laughs> Not make the, not empower the money to, to make the artist, you know, or, or whatever, however he said it. But effectively, he was kind of agreeing with what you were saying. Now, it's, it's about the bands being having the room to breathe, and that's where the, yeah. the revenue comes from. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, that there's always ups and downs. Uh, if you look at the industry today, uh, talk about the industry, right? That there's all sorts of great parts on it, but the majority... It's very accountants and lawyers. Yes. While it's a creative business, mm-hmm. uh, and I think you need to find that creative area, you know, where, where you can find the artists and, and do your work. And mm-hmm. yes, accountants and lawyers, you know, will always be there. Uh, but if they start ruling the business, you, you get a different kind of thing. And I think in the end, uh, I don't think Kate is missing that that, that part, accountants and the lawyers. Yeah, but that's uh, yeah. Well, you know, we have it in every business, and you say like you got so many opinions. You look look at today, mm-hmm. you know, about, about the pandemic we we're in. There's all sorts of experts and and opinions and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's a human. Uh, human yeah, question. yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, last the very final question, leaving all the road stuff behind. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Um, have you ever seen a ghost? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. I probably have, but no. Why are you asking? Is that your? Uh... I, I, I always ask. I don't know. I think I, I can't remember where that question ever came from. But I ask all the guests this, and some of the answers range from nah to this thing. Actually, um, David White from Heathen, he said yes. Let me get my wife. 
and he brought his <laughs> wife down and <laughs> he told us the story about how they were sitting uh, at lunch in, in Hawaii and um, they took a picture of a cat that was, you know, begging for food. And then when they reviewed the picture, there was a foot in the picture, like a human foot. It can't be, it's not like, it can't be mistaken for anything else. Good. It is a human foot that wasn't there. And they were there with the phone and it's just, I just keep asking people because I'm kind of intrigued. And I guess after speaking about for an hour about the record industry, it's just an interesting way to end it, I think. <laughs> so that's why I ask. You know, off, off topic, uh, you know, there was, there was a TV show on, on Dutch television, I think 15 years ago maybe, and it was called Who Was I? Now, if this show would have been on a, on a commercial station, you know, I wouldn't have believed the word. This was on our national television, like say BBC One, right? Okay. And, and the host of the show uh, was a guy that, that would, you know, have only serious shows. He would go and find lost relatives in the world, right, or whatever. He had just had a serious show. Mm. The station uh, that was broadcasting it was a Catholic station. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, what they did, they, they took people into regression therapy. Does it make sense? that they? Yes, that they yeah, they sometimes hypnotize them. So then... Right, and they go back into your world. Yeah, and every show you know brought you brought situations where you go like, wow, you know, this, this is weird. And there was one guy uh, from the Netherlands, and he was this you know very lively and funny, and he was I don't know, he was about sixty or sixty-five, mm-hmm. and they did a regression therapy with him, and it turned out uh, he said that he lived in I think uh, Vienna, right, and it was it was seventeen something. And he was a piano player. And mm-hmm. while he was uh, in, in this trance, he said, like, yeah, I walk into the building, you know, every Sunday morning. I don't make as much money as, as the big songwriters, you know, or, or, or like a Beethoven or a Mozart. But on Sunday morning, I, I go into this building and I play for the people. I said, and my fingers just, you know, so they, they just fly over, over, over the, you know, over the piano and the greatest mm-hmm. melodies come out of me and people love it. And, uh, he was just describing, and the questions were like, "Well, where did you live, and what did you see out of your window, you know, and 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 the building where you played? Can you can you draw that?" And he, after he was, you know, out of his trends, and he just drawed it. He mm-hmm. drawed the building, and he said, "You know, it's, it's like yellow." And, uh, and then they went to Vienna, right, to research. He always would go to Same. places. Yeah, and and he said like. Uh, even the presenters are like, you know, the guy was very enthusiastic. He was sitting down. They were walking through Vienna and he said like, well, the building that, that you, uh, that you draw that looked like this and this, right? Yeah. He said, well, turn around. And he turned around and there was the building. And he just, the guy just walked straight in mm-hmm. through venues, you know, through hallways. And he went into a hall, hall empty. He said like, well, this is where I was in 17 something. Right. And, <laughs> and <laughs> and then they worked on the street. They said, "Where did where did you live?" And he said, "Well, I I, I lived above a uh, uh, a ch- chocolaterie. Does it make sense? Where they sell chocolate and cakes, yep. mm-hmm. and they and they and they made chocolate there for the for the for the royal family for the for mm-hmm. the Kaiser." Mm-hmm. And he said, "I lived above it." And and he said, "Well, what did you see out of your window?" Well, out of my window, I said, "I had a very small house. I was above the bakery, and I could see a fountain." Right? And they were walking through uh, um, through Vienna, and he was looking for the fountain. Mm-hmm. And then they saw the fountain. He said, "Wow!" And he said, "Well, well that's where I lived." 
And uh, he said, I must have lived there. And he walked around. And he said, like, no, 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 that wasn't here. And he walked further. And then he found the chocolate, right, in his bakery. And he said, like, this is where I live. And he <laughs> sat on the terrace. Yeah, he sat on the terrace. And, and, then, and then the host asked the, uh, the waiter, like, is there a chronicle about this building? Mm-hmm. And, and the guy said, yes, well, he said, this is a cafe now, but it used to be a bakery uh, <laughs> a couple of hundred years ago. And we made, and we made chocolate for the, for the royal family. And the guy sprang up like, yes, said, I lived here at that time. I lived here 300 years ago. <laughs> and the presenter <laughs> went like, well, I think the guy is getting nuts right now, right? And then he did further, then he did further research because he said, okay, from your house, you could see this fountain, but it's not there. No, they went to the city. Uh, uh, archive and they found out that the fountain indeed was there but it, it was placed to another part of the city right. <laughs> it was quite astonishing you look at it you went like wow how is it yeah, possible yeah. so this is as close as i've been to seeing a ghost <laughs> <laughs> but i've never ever saw for my uh myself i would be scared i guess that's the great unknown right yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I just ask it because just it's just a random thing to end on, isn't it? It's just a bit of fun. <laughs> there's, 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 there's things. There's things we humans want to know, or we don't know, and we'll never get the answer as long as we live. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Ed. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, hopefully, I'll get this 1980 to 1986 sort of period covered. Um, you know, and there's there's plenty of there's plenty of sound bites in this conversation which I'd love to use just about case and especially about you know it was a 5k deal but once the chips were down it's heavy investment and things I think that's that's been really enlightening well, to me. This this is where you know if if case felt he, he signed a band and they could become today tomorrow's new hope he would yeah. make it happen. You know, he was never scared to, to make an investment. And, and with Cat, I told you, I had a promotion trip. I'm not going to say anything, cause, but I can only say, like, you know, that promotion trip in now in today's time would not be possible to do because this is he was outrageous. Yeah, but very yeah. funny. Yeah, he yeah. was very very funny. And I think Case liked that. I think Cat was actually a signing from Case. Nobody um, wanted it, but he wanted it because he he always in his marketing mind he would go like, "Wow, this is great," uh, you know, because he would. I remember him showing us the uh, uh, the show with Morton Downey where where Cat was on. Have you seen that? Okay. I'm, I'm going to send you. There. I'm going to send you a link to the the thing I did because it's got all this stuff in. It's great. Yeah, I looked at it. I looked at it. Oh, you yeah, did. Was, great. Yeah, she was she was quite a uh, you know funny character, but in a way, you know, a uh, great player. But it, it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, it could never turn into a Sepatura or it could never turn into a uh, an Iolator. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it had a kind of a cartoon side to it, in a way. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, she wouldn't have said that, but we would. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I, I remember when she called, and I could just only take the phone off the hook, put it on the on the corner of my table, and I could perfectly hear what she said. Because <laughs> she was she was always shouting. You know, you probably experienced that too when you talked to her. She was always shouting. But... <laughs> I did it by email. <laughs> She played a role. She know, certainly she did. And it, it, definitely. And you're, you're a guitar guy, so you can see the merits of a guitar arrangement for Beethoven. From a technical perspective, that's fun for a guitar player. Um, yeah. yeah, she definitely... 
she I think she should have a seat at the table, especially when you have like your virtuosos like Malmstein. I, I always cite my Malmstein as, a, as an example because he's like he I think he marketed himself as like the neoclassical guitarist, but he's really a blues guitarist that just does harmonic minor stuff. And that's fine. That's great. But the cat is like, no, Beethoven is the greatest thing in the world and we just need to wake up. <laughs> <laughs> well, she could be right. Yeah. You know, well, but that's the good thing about music. Everybody likes something else again. You know? yeah. There's plenty of yeah. stuff for everybody. And it's great. If everything would sound the same, it would be boring. Right? Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, I, I guess where's Dennis these days then? Uh, Mike said he's gone. He went to Indonesia. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he was from Indonesia. He was a very funny guy, but he, he was PR, artist relationships, um, somebody that, uh, you know, a born sales guy. He, he could sell yeah. you anything. Yeah. You know, yeah, I yeah. think Lou was like that too. Funny, great with people um, pr- from the 70s era. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think at the time, you know, for, for me, the breaking point that road on when things really took off was the Newark office, was the opening. You know, I think that would change everything and just, the way case was driven you know it wasn't like if you're in la um you know there's tons of bands and you go out and you see a new mm-hmm. band you can sign them they're, they're right around the corner and it wasn't the case uh, for roadrunner mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it had to go out and it had to go to america and it had to you know just find those bands too and it took a little longer but i think there was more of a strategy behind it you know marketing yeah. strategy and that's that's why i say like you know, for me, Cage is just one of those great record company guys that could actually turn things around and was very driven and mm-hmm. did nothing with with uh, you know w- w- without a thought. So I said, he's my mentor, and I have the highest of respect for him because now I'm doing it myself, and I know, I know how tough it is. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, I, and I don't travel as much as he he does, and you know, you hear great stories. Uh, uh, I told you he was untouchable, uh, right? And or when when I when I uh, said that I would quit my job, the way he responded. Uh, yep. One American guy, a manager, told me uh, last year, who was actually a good friend of Case, mm-hmm. he told me last year that uh, one of the bands in his management team was on the road on a label. Can't remember the name of the band, mm-hmm. and he wanted Case to invest, and the band was selling. Mm-hmm. And then the band played in uh, uh, in New York, and and. His, his manager and Case went out to see the band, right? And, and uh, they had a new single, and his managers wanted Case to put money behind the single. <clears throat> and then the manager told uh, the guy in the band, mm-hmm. the singer, he said, hey, he said, you know, he said, uh, Case is going to be here tonight. He's the owner of Roadrunner. You know, you, you do a great show, and at the very end of the show, I will give you a signal. You know, you say, like, thank you, New York. Thank you, Roadrunner. When will we be back? You know, we're gonna we're gonna blow your mind, right? And Case was at the show. And I don't know how full it was. You know, the band was playing, and then at the very, at the end, the manager made the sign to the singer, like do your three lines. But the guy mixed it up a little bit, and he said, "Thank you, uh, thank you, New York. You know, thank you, Roadrunner. When we'll be back, we're gonna fuck you in the ass." And then the manager, and, and while he said that, he looked straight at Case, not knowing it was Case, you know. <laughs> and the manager said, he said, he said, you know, I said, Case stood there for two minutes. And, and I said, I didn't know what he was going to do. If he's going to be mad, he's going to laugh. And he said, after two minutes, he said, Case turned to him and he said, like, he said, you know what? I've been promised many things in my career, but I've never been promised to be fucked in my ass. You know, and then he laughed. <laughs> 
And then he left. He said, and the next day at 10 a.m. in the morning, you know, a letter from the lawyer came that the band was dropped. Oh. <laughs> but it was typically him, you know. <laughs> Somebody else would laugh about it, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. it was a step too far. <laughs> so the, the line, you know, the being untouchable, you know, mm. even if he could internally laugh about it, you know, it was just a step over the line. Um, but so, strong characters, you know, make make for great companies, I think. And totally. it goes in all sorts of businesses. You know, and I Absolutely. think that's, that's great. If you look at a guy like, you know, you, you, you cannot compare, but if you look at a guy like Elon Musk, mm-hmm. you know, and look what he does with Tesla and, and the personality he is. And sometimes I think like, you know, how does he do it? Does he does he look a, at a James Bond movie from the 60s and go like, hey, that's a great idea. You know, I'm going to say tomorrow that it almost looks like that. But it's kind of, he's a character leading that company. If he would be, you know, if he would sell the company, nobody would know who Tesla is in, in, in five years because they mm-hmm. probably wouldn't have that person, you know, pushing it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Strong characters are always good. You have them in artists too, you know, and I think nowadays with artists, if, if they're on social media, you need to be a strong character. But if you've got a strong yeah. character, we've got to reach the people, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. when, that's when you can be strong. So, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah, makes I have sense. nothing else <laughs> about, about it here, Ryan. I, said, I, I, I think I told you everything. It was just a great... Great, great time that I that I have extremely fond memories uh, of because I mm. uh, from because I, I you know I lived in the area when metal basically you know stood up, yeah. developed and, and turned into uh, something serious and then I think Roadrunner played a very important part in that because they broke many yeah. many bands. Well, I absolutely agree. I think if you if you look in Roadrunner's early years and, and the and the rock bands, the metal bands, you know, there's two bands that play that play a big role. I would say Twisted Sister that just put case on the on the hard rock uh, side. Yep. And then the very first band, you know, Mirrors for Fate, later King Diamond. Yeah. And if you look at some of the album artwork, the photo sessions that were done, that's all case, right? That that's where the marketing thing yep. came in. I, I remember what was the I think it was the blue album with your house on top. Um, blue album with the house, Abigail. Correct, Abigail. I think it was Abigail. Yeah, yeah, the whole Abigail campaign. I mean, you know, that's King Diamond, but also Case. You know, putting forward the budget, doing big photo sessions, and just making sure it built something. You know, that just elevates it from here uh, till there. And I think. Mirrors of Eight King Diamond has always been, I would say, that's just a first real serious band, very, very important in, in the Roadrunner history. Because without Mirrors of Eight, you know, yeah. we might not have gone on, on that path. No, I did reach out to, um, um, I tried to reach out to their management and I got nothing back. So I'll, I'll have to glean from your, your experience uh, regarding Merciful Fate. But yeah, it, it, is, it is interesting. Um, Especially because, like King Diamond, there's operatic tendencies. It's not. It's, it's not. It's not. A, it's not an opera guy. Is King Diamond? But I can see why Case saw the appeal. The kind of way it was constructed as a narrative is kind of like opera. So I can see why Case would go. Yeah, I can. I can get behind this aesthetically. It was marketable, you know, from the licenses and I think from the sales success. Slayer and Metallica were very, very important. Right, but I think from the own signings, direct signings from, from Cage, you know, Merciful Fate, King Diamond, I would say Definitely. it's the most important in Roadrunner's history. It, it changed everything. It took him on the path. And uh, I think, you know, Cage did a great job for uh, for King yeah. Diamond because it came in a long way, you know, and it had an image and everybody knew what King Diamond was. They still yes. Did. 
yeah, definitely, definitely. And then the, yeah, the next one's to be there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, correct. Yeah, for yeah. the gold. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think now that Mercer Fate King Diamond's very very important band. Carnivore in the beginning wasn't that successful, nor was Ripple. No. I think the success from Carnivore came after they kind of changed musically you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and called themselves Typo Negative because at some point that New York scene exploded. Yes. And, and then Typo Negative, uh, Biohazard, Life Dark of Agony. Uh, Life of Agony, he had all those bands there. Yeah. Uh, and, that's, uh, and I think that's uh, at that time is when the label went just, you know, sky high over there. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how Typo got onto Roadrunner's Bill because Carnivore had obviously... Um, stopped so the story goes that pete is shopping this new band around at different labels but not roadrunner because he didn't he wasn't satisfied with with what roadrunner did for carnivore and then yeah. case pulled him up on a um i don't know what it would be i guess it was like a retention clause in the contract whereby yeah we've got carnivore but pete Steele can't has like a i don't know what you'd call it like a make like a garden leave clause like you can't start and start a new band and then go somewhere else you've got to come back to roadrunner for this yeah. amount of albums from you pete regardless i of remember that yeah. uh yeah yeah you're right there but it's that's all about you know in, in the deal you know i think roadrunner's deals were pretty uh pretty bulletproof yeah totally yeah yeah oh well but he did great things for the bands too Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm speaking to Alan Becker in about two hours. Um, and Richard Bedoff was telling, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm we'll talking to him in about one hour. <laughs> I'm really, I know it's, it's kind of mon- uh, people have been calling me mundane, but I'm really interested in how the IP moves into a retail arm and how it makes the money because that is the driving force. Cause someone like case sees cash flow as like the, the, the do or die part of the business. And I think that's really important to the story. Um, yeah. So that's why I want to speak to, to, to Alan. And obviously I spoke to Richard Bengloff last week on the same kind of capacity. Um, but when that kind of like case said to Alan and the guys, okay, if typo negative bloody kisses goes gold, I'm going to fly all you guys out to Amsterdam and we're going to have a party. I don't think he thought he was going to go gold, but it did. And he stuck to his guns and he, he flew everyone out from red yeah. or important at the time. Was it important? No, it would have been red at the time. Um, yeah. And they all had a, a massive uh, knees up as it were. Oh yeah. It was a time when, when, uh, you know, Roadrunner had bands that sold, you know, in, in the hundreds of thousands. You know, that time is gone now. If you, if you know in America, look at, at a number one, or you, you take the top 10 in the billboard and you look mm-hmm. at what, what the top 10 sell, you're like, fuck, this is pretty sad. You know, it's all streaming yeah. nowadays, but those big numbers are gone because the record stores are gone. Yep. Right? And, uh, no yeah. breaking motor. Change of scenery. Change of scenery. Correct. Yep. Although there's more 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 people consuming music now than uh, than before. Because it yeah. feels free. If you have Spotify, it feels free. Yes. Kind of is. But uh, yeah, no world. Well, anyway, you know, as, as, uh, as if you've got any further questions, let me know. I, I have nothing but fond memories of the label when I worked there. And I always, I, even when I was a did label, and, you know, you read the same magazines, and I could see a Roadrunner campaign. I could always see, you know, that fingerprint from Case on there. Like, oh, Case thinks it is important because they go full out. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, you're a born marketeer. Yeah. Because you know, I remember... Monty would, would bring bands, you know, that would sell instantly. But that was the metal scene, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of fans, and Monty's bands always initially sold. 
while Ron's band didn't. But mm. if they start selling, you know, it was always, uh, you know, it took a long time to big investments on radio and then it could go up. Suddenly. Yeah, totally. And, that, and that's where Nickelback comes from. It's a totally different market. And the reason he works for us is basically, um, I'm, I'm looking for, let's say, for a situation whereby we, you know, can have radio singles, can have, you know, commercial success, and, and mm -hmm. we're doing well with that in the active rock arena in America. And I think if I would go, uh, I tried to sign Nondi too, of course, back in the time when he went to Nuclear Yeah, well, you know, the guy's got ears. <laughs> the guy's got ears on his head, so no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. But uh, in metal land, you know, it's, it's very difficult because the funny thing, what I have, you know, so 1988, I, I take a German magazine, Rock Hard. Right, and you go like, hey, you can diamond on the cover, and then, oh yeah, hey, yeah, cool. Now, 2018, I pick up Rock Hard magazine. Hey, King Diamond on the cover, you know, it's <laughs> all the same thing. <laughs> this is why we're not so deep into the, let's say, the, the real metal scene because yeah. um, it's a lot of old bands doing the There's same a lot thing. Of the legacy acts, more respected, you know. Mm -hmm. It's I, I'm more into the I like developing acts, you know, yeah. like. When we signed for Orbit, nobody wanted them. Absolutely nobody. I think I think I was the last person they came to. Yeah. And I hear the guy's voice and I go like, wow. And I hear yeah, the vocal yeah. lines. And the next day I was on the phone with him, you know, and one record later, everybody was all over it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it's the songwriting, the having a original uh, aspect. And if I hear that, I, I will go into metal too again. And I would try to do that. But at the same time, you know, uh, if you want to be successful in America, you need to play the radio game. If you're not on radio, you, the radio over there is different than it is over here. If you're not on the radio game, if you're not on the radio game, it's very difficult to reach an audience. It's interesting because it is, I think, I, again, it's a Ron Berman thing. I think he's got like a signature sound. It's a really good gainy low end. The rhythm is always so tight, but so sludgy as well. It's beautifully post-grunge. I'm going off piece now, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... I love metal, you know, but there's no situation where you have, you know, innovation going on all the time. It's there, yeah, um, and, and 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 it's limited. And you, you can know? see in the in the in the headliners for festivals every if you say Grass Pop, Hellfest, Wacken, Download, Maiden, Metallica, one of those every year. Maybe there'll be like a novelty act, like a novelty act because. It's not a novelty, but it'll be like, you might see Def Leppard. And the reason that's novel, because you haven't seen them do it before, even though they quite rightly deserve it. But it's usually... Those are the, those are the bands that still sell. If, if you, do, do you do you look at Metal in Numbers, the American uh, site? No. I'm okay, well, look check it. There's, a, there's a site, it's part of, a, of another site. But if you do Metal in Numbers, you'll find it. And you, and you will get weekly sales, the biggest sellers in Metal. And then you see, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. That's the American market. And then you see ACDC last year, like phenomenal old school sales. You're like, wow, it's still possible. Yeah. Right? yeah. But all the young bands sell, sell very, very little. Mm. So it gives you a very good overview of the current situation in yeah. record land in America. And streaming is important. And um, but you should check that because every I'm week, you know, you can, Every week you see sales, and you get notable sales, and it's just it's just you know open to everybody to see. Yeah, if you go Metal Insider, ah. yeah, and and if you're on that site, and then you and then you type in uh, Metal by Numbers, yeah, and you search, and, and you'll get on this site whereby you uh, right now you have to uh, 
I'm looking at the metabyte numbers from the 13th of uh, January. Uh-huh. All right, and I click on that, and then you get then you see new releases. You see ACDC sold nearly 6,000, but they already have a total of 227,000. Yeah. You know, and then you see, you can just see, you know, all the sales, also the new release. I think you see some are pretty, uh, you know, pretty dreadful, but that's, that's the way the market, uh, the market is. And it's actually, wow. it's still the older, the older ones with a, with a big fan base that are still selling. It's, it's a good site. I always yeah. take it as a reference. But nowadays, you know, if you look in nowadays uh, music industry, I think the biggest, the biggest thing for us that is a big help is like we can do so much more research because if yeah. you try to find a band uh, a long time ago, you look at, okay, how many tickets do they sell? What are your mm-hmm. sales? And you have to go by uh, whatever road statement they can show you. But now mm-hmm. in this world, you know, you, you can find so much on a band that Anything. you want to sign in. There's so much data available, you know, and that's what it has become now. It's every business is becoming a data business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, this is why I'm, this is why I'm fascinated by it. It's like what I was saying earlier, I'm trying to try and drive the numbers as to how much Roadrunner was throwing out the door in the licensing days, just to give you an idea of how busy they were. And now it's obviously now it's a lot easier with the data that's out there, but it's not quite relevant to what I'm trying to, it's as in like for the last five years when Roadrunner was a part of Warner, it doesn't tell me how well they're performing against Metal Blade in terms of, uh, when case was there so it's like it's difficult to try and get the data set from like the 90s the early 2000s but this is this yeah, is fascinating. Was, on metal i would say it was the biggest by far yeah literally right? very very big so yeah. just yeah no, great so right. you know, not, not like the old stuff too because i think we're coming up with a ingrid malmsteen record later this year mm. i love it you know and i have to sell it to the team and we had we had ingrid on a promotion trip in england in your country <laughs> yeah it was quite a uh quite an experience for the people over there yeah but he's great no he is great i do like um i do like him there because it's just the virtuosity i mean comparing i comparing to the great cat earlier it's just a different kind of virtuosity and it and i think it, it's just yeah it's um it's got its yeah. place and it's good that he's one of these legacy virtuoso guitarists that still have that audience uh, he's a rock star He's right. a and, that's, that, and that's going missing because nowadays you cannot be a rock star anymore because you can say anything or do anything or, or you're cancelled. You know, and Ingrid, Ingrid is just a rock star he is. You know, yeah. uh, if, if you hear him play, you know, you instantly know it's him. Yeah, exactly. A harmonic you know, and that, yeah. That's what I think is great with an artist, you know. Like if, 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 let's say, if, if, if you hear a new Slayer song, if there would be one, you would mm-hmm. recognize it in an instant. Or Metallica mm. too. You know, it's all the, yeah. all those things that are important. And English, one of those guys. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yep. Right, I've taken up way too much of your time, Ed. But you've you've sure. absolutely my face hurts though because I've been grinning this entire time. So you've definitely <laughs> over delivered um, all this information. I'll definitely follow up with um, some questions if I have some. Um, if you need to know something, if you're missing an error, let me know. Email me, and I will answer you. Because from that era, I. Uh, I should know. Uh, I should know everything, basically. Yeah. You know, Roadrunner. Roadrunner. One thing that if I if I can compliment, let's say, uh, end on one thing. I think Roadrunner was the very first label, metal label, that had their albums on CD. Mm. Japanese okay. versions, and I still have some. You know, that with the white background that you could uh, uh, put them in two halves to open up. Slayer was on there. I think uh, Venom. Uh, a lot of them. He did, he did a bunch of CDs, and you know, 
I think we, we, we bought a thousand or so in, in Japan. It took mm-hmm. weeks mm-hmm. before they got delivered. And then from the thousand that you had, you could sell 300. You know, yeah, that, yeah. In that time, it was just the, the very, very first thing. But this is so typically of case, you know, tomorrow's thing now. You know, and that was what the CD at that time was. And, and wrote on a, it was the first one to happen. I didn't know that. I didn't know they were the first ones to take CDs. That's, that's really interesting. I'll look into that. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much, Jeff. I'll, 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 I'll let you enjoy the rest of your day before we go down another rabbit hole. Yeah, I love this stuff. another call in about uh, 10 minutes with Alan Becker, I think. So. <laughs> Pass on my <laughs> regards in advance. Well. I was speaking yeah. to him, I think, at yeah, six, 7 o'clock your time, 6 o'clock my time, 1 o'clock his time. Right. Cool. Well, pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks, I appreciate it. Thanks,